when the global reserve currency is literally reliant on the sale of oil, the world has a massive carbon emissions problem. Not to mention the fact that, as discussed, the petrodollar is defended by the U.S. military's global presence, which has a carbon output the size of a mid-sized nation, is exaggerated in size by America's need to protect the dollar, and is boosted by the oil price-spiking wars it fights on various continents. It is truly impossible for the petrodollar system to be green when it is based on black gold. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, where you receive your PhD in Bitcoin studies. I am your host, Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I've got a serious list of great uh, articles right now that are a bit of a backlog, uh, but a number of them are long, so they're taking a little bit longer than normal to get out. Sorry for the kind of uh, the slow release schedule we've had, and I'm also grinding out the Block Size War audiobook, so keep an ear out for that one too. It is seriously so good. Um, it's from the BitMEX research team, John and Jonathan Beer, um, and it's gonna it legit is gonna be required reading for all future Bitcoiners. Um, but today we have another brilliant piece from Alex Gladstein, uh, published on Bitcoin Magazine, and this one is about the petrodollar system, how it came about, why it is stuck around, and the horrible costs of maintaining it that so few are willing to admit. Um, first, just a friendly PSA, a reminder, if you have not taken the time to check on your backups, you haven't done that in a while, make sure you do. You know, Take a minute, check on your keys, make sure they are safe, make sure they are working. If you have a uh, BitBox, like me, um, uh, you can just plug in your micro SD card backup and just verify it easily on the device. It's really good practice uh, to do this regularly, so I just want to mention it. Um, and uh, and thanks, obviously, to Bitbox. They are supporting the podcast. They're our lovely sponsor. If you don't have one, you should definitely get one. Uh, the Bitbox O2 has a Bitcoin-only version, my favorite, uh, but discount code GUY, G-U-Y, gets you 5% off uh, all of their stuff at the Shift Crypto store. Um, and, of course, our other amazing sponsor, swanbitcoin.com slash GUY, for your automatic savings plan. Stack sats like you mean it, like you're already on your Bitcoin standard automatically without fail. And you get $10 free for my reference link when you sign up, so that, that doesn't really hurt either. Um, but with that, uh, let's go ahead and hit today's read. It is an amazing piece, and it's titled Uncovering the Hidden Costs of the Petrodollar by Alex Gladstein. The world's reserve currency relies on oil, dictators, inequality, and the military-industrial complex. But a Bitcoin standard could change this. In its growth from conceptual white paper to trillion-dollar asset, Bitcoin has attracted an enormous amount of criticism. Detractors focus on its perceived negative externalities, 
energy consumption, carbon footprint, lack of centralized control, and inability to be regulated. Regardless of the validity of these arguments, few critics stop to think comparatively about the negative externalities of the world's current financial system of dollar hegemony. This is in part because many Bitcoin critics see it as just a Visa-like payment platform and analyze its performance and costs by, quote, transactions per second. But Bitcoin is not a fintech company competing with Visa. It is a decentralized asset competing to be the new global reserve currency, aiming to inherit the role gold once had and the role the dollar holds today. The world relies on the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries, giving America unparalleled and outsized economic dominance. Nearly 90% of international currency transactions are in dollars. 60% of foreign exchange reserves are held in dollars, and almost 40% of the world's debt is issued in dollars, even though the U.S. only accounts for around 20% of global GDP. This special status that the dollar enjoys was born in the 1970s through a military pact between America and Saudi Arabia, leading the world to price oil in dollars and stockpile U.S. debt. As we emerge from the 2020 pandemic and financial crisis, American elites continue to enjoy the exorbitant privilege of issuing the ultimate monetary good and numeraire for energy and finance. The past few decades have seen a vast global rise in economic activity, population, democratic progress, technological advancement, and living standards. But there are many flaws in this system that are rarely spoken about and that weigh heavily on billions of people across the globe. What would the world look like with an open, neutral, predictable base money instead of one controlled and manipulated by one government representing only 4% of the planet's population. This article explores the seldom-discussed and staggering downsides of the current system in the hope that we can replace it with something more fair, free, and decentralized. This essay will explore the rarely-discussed creation of the petrodollar and lay out how America has supported brutal dictators, compromised its national security, harmed its industrial base, propped up and protected the fossil fuel industry, and even waged conflict abroad, all to bolster the dollar's status as a global reserve currency. While this strategy worked for U.S. leaders for many decades, today the world is inexorably moving to a more multipolar financial structure, and possibly towards a Bitcoin standard. Part 1. Birth of the Petrodollar the British Empire was the unquestioned economic hegemon of the 19th century, but began to lose steam early in the 20th century, especially after World War I. The United States emerged much healthier than war-torn Europe, and as the country with by far the most gold. By the outbreak of World War II, the dollar had unquestionably eclipsed the pound as the world's most influential national currency. Governments still relied on gold as the underlying global reserve currency, but U.S. and U.K. policymakers were determined to create a more flexible system. 
In the waning months of World War II, leaders from 44 countries gathered in a hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to choose a new financial bedrock. British economist John Maynard Keynes pushed the idea of the Bancor, a global unit of account that many nations would manage. But the U.S. preferred the idea of the dollar at the center, pegged to gold at $35 per ounce. Since international trade deficits still had to be settled in gold, America's substantial control of the world's gold supply and favorable balance of payments position provided the leverage to get its way. Over the coming decades, the world shifted to the Bretton Woods standard, with national currencies pegged to adjustable dollar amounts, where the U.S. was trusted to custody and hold enough gold to prop up the whole system. Up until the early 1960s, it did a reasonably good job. Dollars became the dominant medium of exchange for international settlement, backed by a promise to pay in gold. America became the largest creditor nation and an economic powerhouse. However, after the assassination of President Kennedy, the U.S. government chose a path of huge social and military spending. With President Johnson's Great Society social programs and the invasion of Vietnam, U.S. debt skyrocketed. Unlike World War II or the Korean War, Vietnam was the first American war waged almost entirely on credit. As Niall Ferguson wrote in Ascent of Money, quote, In the late 1960s, U.S. public sector deficits were negligible by today's standards, but large enough to prompt complaints from France that Washington was exploiting its reserve currency status to collect seniorage from America's foreign creditors by printing dollars, much as medieval monarchs had exploited their monopoly on minting to debase the currency. French economist Jacques Rueff called this the monetary sin of the West, and the French government coined the term exorbitant privilege. Poor British fiscal policy forced a devaluation of the pound in 1967, and the French, fearing that unsustainable American spending would result in similar negative results, wanted its gold back before a dollar devaluation. By 1971, U.S. debt had simply grown too high. Just $11 billion in gold backed $24 billion in dollars. That August, French President Pompidou sent a battleship to New York City to collect his nation's gold holdings from the Federal Reserve, and the British asked the U.S. to prepare $3 billion worth of gold held in Fort Knox for withdrawal. In a televised speech on August 15, 1971, President Richard Nixon told the American people that the U.S. would no longer redeem dollars for gold as part of a plan that included wage and price freezes and an import surcharge in an attempt to save the economy. Nixon said closing the gold window was temporary, but few things are as permanent as temporary measures. As a result, the dollar was devalued by more than 10%, and the Bretton Woods system ceased to exist. The world entered a major financial crisis, though when asked about the impact that the Nixon shock would have on foreign nations, Nixon made his position clear. Quote, 
I don't give a shit about the Lyra. As David Graeber wrote in Debt, Nixon floated the dollar in order to pay for the cost of a war in which he ordered more than 4 million tons of explosives and incendiaries dropped on cities and villages across Indochina. The debt crisis was a direct result of the need to pay for the bombs, or to be more precise, the vast military infrastructure needed to deliver them. This was what was causing such an enormous strain on U.S. gold reserves. For the first time in history, the world was in a pure fiat standard. The dollars held by central banks across the globe lost their backing. And there was a geopolitical moment where U.S. dominance was called into question and where a multipolar financial world was a distinct possibility. Adding even more pressure, in 1973, the Arab petroleum exporters of OPEC decided to quadruple the price of world oil and embargo the U.S. in response to its support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War. In just a few years, a barrel of oil rose from less than $2 to nearly $12. Faced with double-digit inflation and declining global faith in the dollar, Nixon and his Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, came up with an idea that would allow them to keep, quote, guns and butter going in the post-gold standard era and alter the fate of the world. In 1974, they sent new Treasury Secretary William Simon to Saudi Arabia, quote, to find a way to persuade a hostile kingdom to finance America's widening deficit with its newfound petrodollar wealth. Simply put, a petrodollar is a U.S. dollar paid to a petroleum exporter in exchange for oil. As a Bloomberg report says, the basic framework was strikingly simple. The U.S. would, quote, buy oil from Saudi Arabia and provide the kingdom military aid and equipment. In return, the Saudis would plow billions of their petrodollar revenue back into treasuries and finance America's spending. This was the moment that the U.S. dollar was officially married to oil. On June 8, 1974, in Washington, Kissinger and Crown Prince Fahad signed agreements establishing Saudi investment in the U.S. and American support for the Saudi military. Nixon flew to Jeddah a few days later to continue working out details. Declassified documents later revealed that the U.S. government confidentially enabled the Saudis to purchase treasuries, quote, outside regular auctions and at preferential rates. In early 1975, they purchased $2.5 billion of treasuries, beginning a spree that would later become hundreds of billions of petrodollars invested in U.S. debt. Decades later, Jerry Parsky, who was deputy to Treasury Secretary Simon at the time, said that, quote, this secret arrangement with the Saudis should have been dismantled years ago, and that he was surprised the Treasury kept it in place for so long. But even so, he said he has no regrets, since doing the deal was a positive for America. By 1975, other OPEC nations followed Saudi Arabia's lead. If you wanted to buy oil from them and their store of nearly 80% of the world's petroleum reserves, you had to pay in dollars. This created new demand for America's currency 
at a time of global uncertainty, and even at a time of continued inflation. Industrializing nations needed oil, and to get it, they now had to either export goods to the United States or buy dollars in foreign exchange markets, increasing the dollar's global network effect. In 1974, 20% of global oil was still transacted in the British pound, but that number fell to 6% by 1976. By 1975, Saudi imports of U.S. military equipment had risen from $300 million to more than $5 billion. Oil prices, boosted by the premium that came with being able to be sold for dollars, would remain sky-high until 1985. Part 2. Impact of the Petrodollar In his research on the petrodollar, political economist David Spiro argues that OPEC dollar profits were recycled into U.S. treasuries to subsidize the debt-happy policies of the U.S. government as well as the debt-happy consumption of its citizenry. Petrodollar recycling over time pushed down interest rates and allowed the U.S. to issue debt very cheaply. This system was created and held in place not by pure economics, but by politics through the pact with Saudi Arabia. As Alan Greenspan said in 1977, reflecting on his experience as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Ford administration, the Saudis were, quote, non-market decision-makers. Graeber points to petrodollar recycling as an example of how U.S. treasuries replaced gold as the world's reserve currency and ultimate store of value. The kicker, he explains, was that, quote, over time, the combined effect of low interest payments and inflation is that these bonds actually depreciate in value. Economists prefer to call it seniorage. Since its creation in 1974, the petrodollar system has changed the world in many significant ways, including the creation of a tight alliance between the United States and the Saudi Arabian dictatorship, as well as other tyrannies in the Gulf region. The steep rise of the Eurodollar, shadow global economy as petrodollars created outside the control of the Federal Reserve, flooded banks in London and North America, and were then recycled into U.S. treasuries or loaned back out to emerging markets. The financialization of the American economy, as the artificially strong dollar made exports uncompetitive, hollowed out the middle class, and shifted focus from manufacturing to finance, technology, defense, and services, all while increasing the leverage in the system. Additional stress on the Soviet Union, which was now faced with an increasingly dollarized world market, where the U.S. could print money to buy oil, but it had to dig oil out of the ground. Painful issues for emerging market economies, which became merged in dollar-denominated debt that was difficult to pay back, and stuck in a system that prioritized dollar accumulation over domestic investment, harming income and triggering debt crises everywhere, from Mexico to East Asia to Russia to Argentina. Steady growth of the oil and fossil fuels industries at the expense of nuclear power and regional energy independence. And, of course, the continuation of the U.S. as a military financial hegemon and the ability 
of the U.S. to run humongous deficits to finance wars and social programs, all in part paid for by other countries. There are petrodollar theory critics who say the phenomenon is largely a myth. They say the dollar has been dominant simply because there has been no competition. Dean Baker from the Center for Economic and Policy Research has said that, quote, while it is true that oil is priced in dollars and that most oil is traded in dollars, these facts make relatively little difference for the status of the dollar as an international currency, for the economic well-being of the United States. Meanwhile, modern monetary theorists like Warren Mosler and Stephanie Kelton downplay the importance of the petrodollar, saying, it doesn't matter, or it's irrelevant, as it does not limit what the U.S. can do domestically and that internationally, it does not matter what oil is priced in because countries can just swap currencies before purchase. Critics point to the fact that the dollar was already the world reserve currency before 1973, and that the pricing of commodities in dollars is just a convention, and that, quote, there would be no real difference if the euro, the yen, or even bushels of wheat were selected as the unit of account for the oil market. They also say the dollars involved in the oil trade are trivial compared with other sources of demand. But the decision of Saudi Arabia and OPEC to price their oil exports in dollars and invest the profits in U.S. debt was not a strict market decision, and not one of fortune or happenstance, but a political one, done in exchange for protection and weapons, and one that sparked countless additional network effects that over time solidified the dollar as the world's reserve currency. When countries are forced to exchange their own currencies for dollars to buy oil, this strengthens that trading pair for that country, extending U.S. influence beyond energy markets. In Debt, Graeber does mention the debate over whether or not oil sales denominated in dollars give any seniorage to the U.S., but says that regardless, what ultimately matters is, quote, that U.S. policymakers seem to feel the fact that they are symbolically important and resist any attempt to alter this. Part 3. American Foreign Policy and the Petrodollar In October 2000, Saddam Hussein did attempt to alter the petrodollar system when he announced that Iraq would sell oil in euros, not dollars. By February 2003, he had sold 3.3 billion barrels of oil for 26 billion euros. With his French and German trading partners, the Petro-Euro was born, which, if expanded, would help a euro market develop against lots of other currencies, boosting the euro's strength and eroding the dollar's exorbitant privilege. But one month later, the U.S., aided by the United Kingdom, invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam. By June, Iraq was back to selling oil in dollars again. Did America go to war to defend the petrodollar? This possibility is almost never discussed in retrospective analyses of the war, which tend to fixate on questions of Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction stockpile, human rights abuses, or terror links. But at the time, the euro was actually seen by many as a realistic challenger to the dollar. Given that the ouster of Saddam, in retrospect, helped deter change and give the petrodollar system many more years of dominance, 
it seems like one of the more reasonable explanations for the most mysterious war in modern American history. Last year, the journalist Robert Draper appeared on Ezra Klein's show to discuss his new book, quote, To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. With a decade of hindsight, they covered many of the possible motives for the invasion, but ultimately called it a war in search for a reason. To this day, there is no consensus for why exactly the U.S. invaded Iraq, and the official reasons have proven to be completely contrived. According to former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill, by February 2001, the Bush administration was already talking internally about the logistics of invading Iraq. Not the why, he said, but the how and how quickly. Blueprints were already being made. On 9-11, just a few hours after the attacks, then-Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz ordered a comprehensive study of Saddam's ties to terrorist organizations. Over the next 18 months, the Bush administration sold the war effort, and by March 2003 had achieved wide support, especially with the help of Secretary of State Colin Powell, who spent his credibility on a PR campaign at the United Nations and on news television. Both houses of Congress supported the removal of Saddam, including Senators Clinton, Kerry, Reid, and Biden. In the media, outlets ranging from Fox News to the New York Times supported the invasion, as did 72% of the American people in polling in the weeks leading up to the invasion. The public rationale was clear. Saddam was dangerous, was believed to have weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, could slip them to Al-Qaeda, and needed to be stopped. At the time, Vice President Dick Cheney said, There can be no doubt that Saddam has WMDs. The war was also marketed as a humanitarian effort and was given the name Operation Iraqi Freedom. But in retrospect, America did not invade Iraq to promote human rights. There was no connection to Al-Qaeda or 9-11. And despite Cheney's promises, no WMDs were ever found. Other motives were and continue to be discussed, including countering Iran, which makes little sense given most Iraqis are Shia and their political structure ended up tilting more toward Iran during the occupation, and given that the U.S. had supported Saddam in previous decades for this very purpose. The flimsy nature of the official reasons for war led many to believe that oil was the root cause. This would not be unusual. Over the past 150 years, Natural resources have been at the root of many wars, invasions, and occupations that have shaped our world, including the Scramble for Africa, the Great Game in Central Asia, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, the assassinations of Mossadegh and Lumumba, and the First Gulf War. George W. Bush, Colin Powell, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, Coalition Provisional Authority Paul Bremer, and British Foreign Secretary Jack Straw, all publicly denied that the war was about oil. But former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan wrote in his memoir that, quote, I am saddened that it is politically inconvenient to acknowledge what everyone knows. The Iraq War is largely about oil. And told the media that removing Saddam was essential to secure world oil supplies. 
former head of U.S. operations in Iraq, General John Abizade, said that, quote, Of course it's about oil. We can't really deny that. And former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel admitted in 2007 that, quote, People say that we're not fighting for oil. Of course we are. It is true that America, even at that time, did not consume a large portion of its oil from the Middle East. In 2003, the U.S. received most of its oil from domestic production, plus sources in Canada, Mexico, and Venezuela. In this light, invading Iraq simply to control oil seems like a weak reason. And most could easily predict that a hot war would damage Iraq's oil infrastructure, creating long delays before production could get back up to speed. But perhaps the war was not waged for oil in a general sense, but specifically to defend the petrodollar system. In post-invasion May 2003, weeks before Iraq switched back to selling oil in dollars, Howard Feynman wrote in Newsweek that the Europeans were debating the UN over whether or not to continue searching for the WMDs that they could not find. He reported that the real dispute was not, quote, about WMDs at all, it's about something else entirely, who gets to sell and buy Iraqi oil, and what form of currency will be used to denominate the value of the sales. As Graeber asks, quote, how much did Hussein's decision to buck the dollar really weigh into the U.S. decision to depose him? It's impossible to say. His decision to stop using, quote, the enemy's currency, as he put it, was one in a back-and-forth series of hostile gestures that likely would have led to war in any event. What's important here is that there were widespread rumors that this was one of the major contributing factors, and therefore no policymaker in a position to make a similar switch can completely ignore the possibility. Much though their beneficiaries do not like to admit it, all imperial arrangements do ultimately rest on terror. With hindsight, the early 2000s were an era when, presented with the challenge of the euro, it made sense for the U.S. to take action. And so whether or not the defense of the petrodollar was the main aim of the invasion of Iraq, the outcome was the same. Other countries saw what was done to Saddam and were for many years careful about pushing their own petro-currency. And the oil? Iraq's production more than doubled from 2001 to 2019, eventually climbing to 5 million barrels of oil per day. The financial world has become multipolar over the past few years, but as of 2019, more than 99% of crude oil trade payments were still in dollars. Part 4. Dictators, Inequality, and Fossil Fuels Alright, I need a quick break and something to drink. I really hope I'm going to have time for a guy's take. If not, we'll do a follow-up on this. Let's hit our sponsor real quick and we'll jump back in on part four. The Bitbox O2 for your Bitcoin keys is a barrier between bad guys and your Bitcoin bits. It's a basic box that blesses your keys with bountiful protection and will boost embracing you for the blowout bullishness of hyper-Bitcoinization as Bitcoin on your BitBox becomes the bedrock of the battle for a borderless future. The BitBox is your Bitcoin vault, and it's not even got buttons. Don't let a burglar get your bits. Bur bind your binaries to the open-source BitBox and Binance 
by bypass the Binance IOUs, be a based Bitcoiner, and use the Bitcoin BitBots O2. 5% off your purchase if you put guy in the discount box. <laughs> BitBox! Part 4. Dictators, Inequality, and Fossil Fuels Beyond the Iraq War, there are several other key and much more obvious negative externalities of the petrodollar system. American support for the Saudi dictatorship is one. Even though 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 plus Osama bin Laden himself were Saudi, the U.S. government has forcibly resisted any attempt to investigate the Saudi regime for involvement in the attack and instead invaded and bombed other countries in retaliation. The petrodollar is one of the primary reasons why the murderous House of Saud is still in power. In 2002, former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Chaz Freeman, told Congress, One of the major things the Saudis have historically done, in part out of friendship with the United States, is to insist that oil continues to be priced in dollars. Therefore, the U.S. Treasury can print money and buy oil, which is an advantage no other country has. In 2007, the Saudis warned the U.S. that it would drop the petrodollar system if they pursued the NOPEC congressional bill that would enable the Justice Department to pursue OPEC governments over antitrust laws for manipulating oil prices. The bill was never enacted. According to a 2016 New York Times story, Saudi Arabia, quote, told the Obama administration and members of Congress that it will sell off hundreds of billions of dollars worth of American assets held by the kingdom if Congress passes a bill that would allow the Saudi government to be held responsible in American courts for any role in the September 11, 2001 attacks. In 2020, then-Attorney General William Barr prevented the name of a Saudi diplomat linked to 9-11 from entering the public domain because such a disclosure risked, quote, significant harm to the national security. In the wake of the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, President Donald Trump would not push for action against Mohammed bin Salman. On NBC News, he said, I'm not like a fool that says we don't want to do business with them. President Biden has also refused to penalize MBS directly, even though he has been presented with evidence from his own intelligence agencies showing that he ordered Khashoggi's murder saying it would be too costly for America. These are just a few examples of how, despite the Saudi regime's bloody war in Yemen, its torture of female political prisoners, and its assassination of Khashoggi, America's relationship with the kingdom remains steadfast and protected at the highest levels. According to research from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, between 2015 and 2019, the six Gulf states bought more than one-fifth of arms sold globally, with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar ranking as the world's first, eighth, and tenth largest arms importers. Saudi Arabia alone purchased one-quarter of total U.S. arms exports during that period, up from 7.4% in 2010 to 14. The Oil Pricing Pact first made in 1974, remains strong in 2021, despite
despite very different times. Domestically, certain factions of America have prospered because of the petrodollar, but the impact on the median American has been negative. As was written recently in Foreign Affairs, quote, The benefits of dollar primacy accrue mainly to financial institutions and big businesses, but the costs are generally borne by workers. For this reason, continued dollar hegemony threatens to deepen inequality as well as political polarization in the United States. Corporations and asset owners have benefited most in the system's low interest rate environment. As Fagan and Luster argue in The Class Politics of the Dollar System, quote, Dollar primacy feeds a growing American trade deficit that shifts the country's economy toward the accumulation of rents rather than the growth of productivity. This has contributed to a falling labor and capital share of income and to the ballooning cost of services such as education, medical care, and rental housing. As the petrodollar system kept international demand for the dollar artificially strong throughout the decades, America's manufacturing base became weak and uncompetitive and lost jobs overseas. Normally, a currency that is too strong ends up creating a deficit issue and is forced to devalue to sell exports. But as investor Lynn Alden points out in The Fraying of the U.S. Global Currency Reserve System, that has never happened with the U.S. due to the continual payment of its deficits by foreign nations. In 1960, the economist Robert Trifon identified this phenomenon now known as the Trifon Dilemma. To remain the world's reserve currency, the U.S. must provide global liquidity by running increasingly large deficits, which one day must undermine faith in the dollar. The U.S. financial sector has ballooned, now accounting for 20% of GDP, compared with 10% in 1947. This financialization has enriched the asset-holding elite on the coasts while ruining Rust Belt workers who deal with stagnant wages. This has sparked populism and extreme inequality, where the U.S. average wealth is still relatively high among advanced nations, but its median wealth is relatively low. In this way, Alden and other macroeconomic thinkers like Luke Grauman argue that dollar hegemony actually hurts the U.S. in its competition with nations like China, which are able to continually borrow dollars to stockpile hard assets and consolidate control over important global supply chains. And then, of course, we have the petrodollar itself and its impact on the environment. As Reuters reported, quote, if dollar-denominated oil usage declines in favor of home-produced wind, solar, or hydro energy sources, then the swelling pool of global petrodollars recycled and invested by the world's big oil producers since the end of the gold standard in the 1970s may drain with it. Simply put, a global shift to renewables would put a big dent in the demand for fossil fuels, which could deal a knockout blow to the petrodollar system and the ability for the U.S. to run up massive deficits without consequences. Oil interests have aggressively resisted attempts to develop nuclear energy and other renewables over the past few decades. The U.S. military continues to be the single largest consumer of petro-resources.
When the global reserve currency is literally reliant on the sale of oil, the world has a massive carbon emissions problem. Not to mention the fact that, as discussed, the petrodollar is defended by the U.S. military's global presence, which has a carbon output the size of a mid-sized nation, is exaggerated in size by America's need to protect the dollar, and is boosted by the oil price-spiking wars it fights on various continents. It is truly impossible for the petrodollar system to be green when it is based on black gold. Part 5. Bitcoin and a Multipolar World U.S. foreign policy has kept the petrodollar dominant for many decades, but its power is inarguably beginning to wane. Many Americans, including this author, have been incredibly privileged by this system, but it will not last forever. Luke Groman calls the petrodollar system a, quote, company town, where the U.S. has enforced control over oil pricing with threats and violence. After the fall of the Soviet Union, he says, America could have restructured the system and held another Bretton Woods, but it held on to the unipolar moment. Beyond protecting the system against disruptions like the petro-euro, Groman says that America extended the life of the system by launching NAFTA and helping China join the World Trade Organization in 2001. These steps allowed the U.S. to continue exporting manufacturing and treasuries abroad in exchange for goods and services. He notes that in 2001, China's treasury holdings were $60 billion, but rose to $1.3 trillion a decade later. From 2002 to 2014, America's biggest export was treasuries, where foreign central banks bought 53% of the issuance, using it as a new form of gold. But since then, China and other governments have been divesting treasuries and pushing us toward a new system in expectation of that gold losing value. According to Groman, they realized if dollars were still priced in oil as the U.S. continued to run higher debt-to-GDP ratios, up from 35% in the 1970s to more than 100% today, the price of oil would eventually skyrocket. Europe was not able to disrupt the petrodollar system in the early 2000s, but over time, the U.S.'s hegemony and ability to stop other nations from pricing oil in their own currencies has eroded. More and more countries are denominating oil trade in other currencies, like euros, yuan, and rubles, partly because they fear reliance on a weakening system, and partly because the U.S. government continues to use the dollar as a weapon. The American sanction system is incredibly powerful, as it can cut enemies off from the SWIFT payment network or from the World Bank or IMF. As the Financial Times reported, quote, By using American banks as a cudgel against Russia, Joe Biden has shown a willingness to weaponize the U.S. financial system against foes, continuing a tactic honed during the Obama years and dramatically ramped up under Donald Trump. This month, President Biden publicly denounced the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, which would build on the momentum Russian President Vladimir Putin already has with Rosneft, pricing more than 5% of the world's oil in euros by connecting Europe and Russia. Team Biden reportedly wants to, quote, kill the project, and its officials have commented that dollar primacy remains, quote, hugely important to the administration and that its 
in our national interest because of the funding cost advantage it provides, because it allows us to absorb shocks and gives us enormous geopolitical leverage. This is a striking indication of just how important the petrodollar system remains politically to the U.S. 50 years after its creation, despite critics who say the world uses dollars for pure market reasons. Many countries want to escape from U.S. financial control, and this desire is accelerating global de-dollarization. For example, China and Russia are, as of last year, transacting in dollars just 33% of the time, versus 98% just seven years ago. China is expanding oil trading denominated in yuan, and many worry about the Chinese Communist Party's new DCEP, or Digital Yuan Project, being a ploy for increased international use of the yuan. Meanwhile, former European Commission President Sebastian Juncker has said, It is absurd that Europe pays for 80% of its energy import bill, worth 300 billion euros a year, in U.S. dollars, when only roughly 2% of our energy imports come from the United States. While the dollar is still dominant, trends point to other major currencies gaining traction in the coming years. Beyond a shift to a multipolar currency world, another threat to the petrodollar could be the SDR, or Special Drawing Rights, employed by the IMF, which is based on the dollar, euro, pound, yen, and yuan. Inspired by Keynes and his failed Bancor idea from Bretton Woods, the SDR has achieved more traction in the past few years, with more than 200 billion units in circulation and another 650 billion possibly being created. But few governments in a position of economic power would willingly hand their monetary control over to an unelected alphabet soup organization. As for gold, the world is not going back. As Jacques Rueff wrote in the 1960s, quote, Money managers in a democracy will always choose inflation. Only a gold standard deprives them of the option. The left-wing historian Michael Hudson explains that in the 1970s, he tried to make an apolitical case for the U.S. government to revert to the gold standard, teaming up with the right-wing scholar Herman Kahn. He and I went down and gave a presentation to the U.S. Treasury, saying, Gold is a peaceful metal because it's a constraint on the balance of payments. If countries had to pay their balance of payments deficit in gold, they would not be able to afford the balance of payments costs of going to war. That was pretty much accepted. And that was why the United States basically responded, That's why we're not going back to gold. We want to be able to go to war, and we want the only alternative to hold central bank reserves to be the United States dollar. Gold is, by the account of most economists today, simply too restrictive. A 2020 study in the Journal of Institutional Economics posited four potential future monetary outcomes for the world. Continued dollar hegemony. Competing monetary blocks, where the EU and China act as counterweights to the U.S. An international monetary federation, where at the top of the international hierarchy stands no longer a state, but the BIS and the SDR. And international monetary anarchy where the world shrinks into less connected islands. The authors, however, miss a fifth possibility, a Bitcoin standard where the digital currency becomes the global reserve asset.
Since its creation in 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin has grown in value from less than a penny to more than $50,000, spreading to every major urban area on Earth as a store of value and in some places a medium of exchange. In the past year, Fortune 500 companies like Tesla and sovereign wealth funds like Singapore's Temasek have started to accumulate Bitcoin on account of its inflation-resistant properties. Many call it digital gold. We are very possibly witnessing the birth of not just a new ultimate store of value, but also a new global base money, neutral and decentralized like gold, but unlike gold in that it is programmable, teleportable, easily verifiable, absolutely scarce, and resistant to centralized capture. Any citizen or any government can receive, store, or send any amount of Bitcoin simply with internet access, and no alliance or empire can debase that currency. It is, as some say, the currency of enemies. Adversarial parties can use the system and benefit equally without detracting from each other. As Bitcoin's value goes up against fiat currencies, more and more corporations and individuals will begin to accumulate. Eventually, governments will too. At first, they will add it as a small part of their portfolio alongside other reserve currencies, but eventually, they will try to buy, mine, tax, or confiscate as much as they can. Born at a time when the previous world reserve currency had reached its apex, Bitcoin could introduce a new model, with more possibilities but also more restraint. Anyone with an internet connection will be able to protect their wages and savings, but governments, unable to so easily create money on a whim, will not be able to wage forever wars and build massive surveillance states that contradict the wishes of their citizens. There could be a closer alignment between the rulers and the ruled. The big fear, of course, is that America will not be able to finance its exorbitant social programs and military spending if there is less global demand for the dollar. If people prefer the euro or yuan or bonds from other countries, the U.S. in its current form would be in big trouble. Nixon and Kissinger designed the petrodollar so that the U.S. could benefit from global demand for dollars tied to oil. The question is, why can't there be a global demand for dollars tied to Bitcoin? No matter the base money, there could still be fiat currency and government debt, priced according to the economic power and Bitcoin position of those countries. And in the emerging Bitcoin world, America is leading in many categories, whether it is infrastructure, software development, actual holdings by the population, and increasingly, given current trends, mining. America is also built on liberty, equality of opportunity, free speech, private property, open capital markets, and other values and institutions that Bitcoin reinforces and reverberates. If Bitcoin did eventually become the global base money, then America is in a position to capitalize on that transformation. This means no more reliance on dictators and secret pacts in the Middle East, no more need to threaten or invade other countries to preserve dollar primacy, and no more opposing nuclear or other renewable energy technology to protect the fossil fuel industry. 
Unlike the petrodollar system, Bitcoin could very well accelerate the global energy transition to renewables, with miners always choosing the cheapest sources of electricity and trends pointing to cheaper renewables in the future. Under the Bitcoin standard, everyone would play by the same rules. No government or alliance of governments can manipulate the monetary policy, but any individual can opt into a non-discretionary, rules-based currency and control a savings instrument that has historically appreciated versus goods and services. This would be a dramatic net benefit for most people on Earth, especially when considering that billions today live under high inflation, financial repression, or economic isolation. This transition may not be so pleasant for authoritarian regimes, which are more closed, tyrannical, violently redistributionist, and isolated than liberal democracies. But in this author's view, that would be a good thing, and one that could force reforms where activism alone has failed. The world's multipolar drift is inevitable. No one country can, in the near future, gain as much power as America had at the end of the 20th century. The U.S. will still be a powerhouse for a long time to come, but so will China, the EU, Russia, India, and other nations. And they may compete in a new monetary system that moves away from the petrodollar and all of its costly externalities. A neutral Bitcoin standard that plays to the strengths of open societies, does not depend on dictators or fossil fuels, and is ultimately run by citizens, not the entrenched elite. This is a guest post by Alex Gladstein. So yeah, the Iraq war was definitely fought over the petrodollar. <laughs> like, in my opinion, like, Alex Gladstein does a really good job of, you know, laying out like a lot of the little evidence pieces and all this stuff, but I just don't. I, I've seen so many or heard so many of those little like slip-ups of, oh, well, no, yeah, it was definitely about this. And then uh, and Nancy Pelosi and like so many, I mean, there were multiple politicians that would even say, have said openly since then. It's like, well, we knew there were no WMDs. I mean, as if just... They just off the cuff, they would just drop this, and there is no sufficient excuse, I think, that that has the backing of the petrodollar theory. And it also is the exact same theory that fully explains why we didn't go after Saudi Arabia and we didn't do anything about their obvious full like huge involvement in 9-11. Um, and why we ignored Afghanistan after we basically stopped the pipeline that was uh, moving across the country, that was being built across uh, the country. So I don't know. I don't, I think all of the official excuses are garbage. They, they don't hold up. They don't, they don't hold any water under even the slightest scrutiny. Either that or we're just absolutely complete morons, like as a political system, which is believable, you know, like, you know, never, um, uh, attribute to maliciousness that which is easily explained through incompetence. Maybe they're just absolutely incompetent buffoons. I'm very accepting that that could be a possible scenario. But that one, the, the petrodollar 
reasoning just makes too much sense. And I think it is not widely accepted simply because people don't know the first thing about our monetary system. If you said petrodollar to the average person, they wouldn't have the slightest clue that this is why our dollar is so strong. And I find it hilarious that um, the critics of the petrodollar system that he, or the, excuse me, the petrodollar theory that Alex Gladstein brings up in this, like Warren Mosler and the other MMT, uh, like Stephanie Kelton and stuff. I really think it's hilarious that they, they say, oh, their excuse for why clearly the petrodollar isn't important um, is that there's all these secondary markets and uh, additional um, like derivatives and other treasury markets and stuff that are for the dollar that aren't specifically around the energy market, right? Like it's got a huge broad market just for the dollar and just for treasuries that aren't just for the oil nations, that aren't just about OPEC. I think this is kind of indicative of their horrible grasp of e economics, honestly, um, because they're putting the cart before the horse. They don't realize that if you have a strong base for the currency demand that won't go away, that you know is politically controlled and or enforced, well, then of course there's secondary and tertiary markets. Of course it expands into all the other areas and avenues. And in fact, I think it's a bit of dishonesty on their part because they know that that's important. They, they, they use that very same excuse. This is why they say you don't have to worry about inflation is because the government has legal tender laws within their nation for their currency and that they can tax it from people after printing it into the economy. And Steph, Stephanie Kelton has made this argument many times. Warren Mosler has made this argument. This is kind of the dominant MMT theory on why it is that the government can just change the scoreboard however the hell they want, and it somehow just doesn't affect anything. They say it's explicitly because the legal tender, the government currency, is required as payment for taxes, and that this is the most important factor for preventing inflation and keeping up the market for the currency. So on the one hand, they say requiring dollars to buy energy the absolute most basic resource for human prosperity and economic life is not important to the value of the dollar and the market for the dollar, but then immediately turn around and say that requiring dollars for payment in taxes and that country's creditworthiness as an extension of that is the very foundation of the dollar's value. It, that's just a tiny hint of the ridiculous levels of contradiction in the MMT, in the MMT crowd. And I say that with as much respect as possible, honestly, as someone who was kind of deep down the MMT rabbit hole for about a month or two uh, with my brother. I thought it was a brilliant theory. It completely changed how I saw money and was my first kind of foray into the concept of money as basically an economic scoreboard, um, which I still kind of think of it that way. And it's very potentially or very possibly why I found Austrian economics. Um, because it was that that made me realize money was just a scorekeeping system and the MMTers just never seemed to took the next step into connecting that scoreboard to reality uh, and instead isolated all of their theories into this fantasy world where there's unicorns and happiness and we can all live in and eat a whole bunch of paper promises. So even though Alex Gladstein in this article 
you know, kind of positions it, you know, very, very diplomatically, I guess you could say, as like these are possible, you know, outcomes or consequences of the petrodollar system. They just are. I think the foreign policy of the United States, the the wars that we have fought have been predominantly and, you know, maybe there's plenty of other little stupid excuses that have added to it. But I think the major factor in essentially all of the U.S. foreign policy since the 70s has been about propping up and sustaining the petrodollar system. And this is why, you know, people say I'm crazy or say it's ridiculous to think that Bitcoin is going to stop wars. But the petrodollar system has explicitly incentivized and funded wars for 50 years. And one of the coolest things... Uh, in this article, actually, was the uh, his clip or clip his uh, excerpt from uh, uh, Herman Kahn, I believe. Where where was it? Um, Michael Hudson and teaming up with Herman Kahn when they went to the U.S. government to make an apolitical case for why they should revert to gold rather than doing a fiat standard. And I just gonna I just want to read this again just to kind of let this settle. Um, he and I went down and gave a presentation to the U.S. Treasury saying gold is a peaceful metal because it is a, con- because it is a constraint on the balance of payments. If countries had to pay their balance of payments deficit in gold, they would not be able to afford the balance of payments costs of going to war. That was pretty much accepted, and that was why. The United States basically responded, that's why we're not going back to gold. We want to be able to go to war, and we want the only alternative to hold central bank reserves to be the United States dollar. The government explicitly rejects a gold standard because they know they will not be able to afford to go to war. This is why we will never go back to a gold standard. This is why it cannot and will not ever be solved politically. If there is ever a hint of a move forward or a move in the proper direction in the political sphere, it will just be an admission of defeat because Bitcoin is such a wave that they know they cannot deny it. Or it will just be a sheer stroke of luck and a great opportunity at the perfect time. But regardless, there is no sustainable solution without removing money from the state. The separation of money and state is the most important thing that we could be doing right now. And it can only come about through the open competition of a money they cannot stop. That is the design, that is the purpose of Bitcoin. If we are not prioritizing and focusing 100% on building something that they cannot stop. That is the whole goal, a monetary policy that they cannot stop, they cannot cheat, they cannot corrupt, that is equal for everyone. That's it. Payments are a distant second. We will get it because it's open, programmable, permissionless protocol. We already have payments. Lightning Network works like a charm. I love it. In fact, actually, I almost forgot. I I just released... Uh, BitcoinAudible.com slash vote. Um, uh, anybody who wants to vote on 
Uh, what article to read next? This one was actually the highest when I, I released this to the audio notes. Thank you guys, by the way, for testing and, you know, getting to play around with this beforehand and, of course, uh, helping to fund it. Um, but uh, we built a really cool little tool. I, I, I didn't build it. I funded um, uh, Super Testnet is, uh, is the guy who built this thing. But it's a neat little way to vote with, like, just a little lightning payments uh, to... Uh, you know, help boost the article that you actually want to hear because I usually am picking stuff kind of at random, hoping that because somebody recommended it to me, that that means people want to hear it. But I, I honestly don't really know. It's it's kind of a guess, and so I just kind of read what I want to read for the most part. Um, but it would be cool to have a lot of feedback, like to to be able to get you guys to go and be like fifty cents to this article because I would really love to hear this one. So anyway, don't forget to check that out if uh, you want to participate. But that's payments. That's great. It's awesome. But the goal is a non-state monetary policy. It is the separation of money and state. That is the most important mission. That is the $100 trillion holy grail of problems that we could actually solve. And while the entire system is currently in flux, while it is currently breaking apart and the world is becoming multipolar and there is questions, there are questions, there is uncertainty about what will replace it, Bitcoin is in its prime. And that truly feels like a bizarre stroke of luck or just serendipity that Bitcoin is where it is and at the stage that it is in this environment at a, at a hundred year shift. Like an 80 to 100 year shift in the monetary system of the world. And here is Bitcoin throwing a wrench into everyone's plans. And I love it. It could not be more beautiful. It still gets me sometimes that like, this feels like the story of what's happening in the world. Like the petrodollar is like the story of money. And this is something that as I like really dove into economics, like Austrian economics specifically, and started looking back through history is that the most interesting stories are the stories of money. And I don't mean that just in the sense that like, oh, I love economics and money is like the dork, the thing that I dork out on really bad. I mean, it is, but uh, that the story of money is the story of civilization, like the breakdown of the monetary system, of the economic base is what is the reason so many of these wars happen. Like you, you actually get this, this silly facade of what actually caused these major shifts in history when you realize that the real underlying, the root causes of so much of this, so much of our warring and government and monarchy history is actually a contest over money. It's about the conquest of resources and money is the ultimate resource. And then the major areas of disruption, the huge periods of change in history are, coincide with massive technological shifts and monetary shifts that altered the fundamental environment and made people's relation to, relationships to each other different. It changed the dynamics, that, that violence, that, that cost and reward to violence at scale. And it just, that, that shines a light on, it just makes you look at everything in history in a totally different light. And it seems like stuff that just was so nonsensical suddenly makes sense. 
suddenly there's there's this common thread throughout all of it that can put so many different puzzle pieces together. And the petrodollar system is, I mean, we've gone to a full fiat standard and the externalities are unbelievable. And the story of how of how the US dominated the monetary standards post World War II really is the story of American dominance. It's it's why the political system was so unbelievably influential and the move to the petrodollar like in my mind from kind of like a political even though I think of it as like a pretty evil thing and it was on the fa- like like on the whole on net it was very bad for the U.S., the U.S. population specifically. I mean, as I said, um, I think we've lost our, we've completely destroyed our manufacturing base because our chief, our chief export is paper. Our, our chief export is the U.S. dollar. So basically, domestic manufacturing can never compete. It's been, we've been rug pooled by our own government, and the middle class and the poor have completely suffered for, for it. While the entire economy has exploded with rent seekers and been disgustingly overfinancialized, um, we've become, you know, people talk about like, oh, the future of the economy is like all service based. It's like, no, you can't have services if you don't have buildings, if you don't have infrastructure, if you don't have energy production, if you don't have the manufacturing for the tools that provide the services. Like, that's not a natural extension. It's it's a consequence of the petrodollar system taking all of our sh- the strong base out of the economy and exporting it, exporting it to other countries. Now, I legit think that if the petrodollar system does not collapse, America is screwed. Like I think it would be a huge benefit for the American middle class and lower classes, um, and it would wipe out a ton of the inequality in this country to let the bad currency system fail. And it would hurt a ton of people, no doubt. It would absolutely be an utter mess. But I think in the long run, it's the only solution. It's the only way out is to stop bleeding the country dry. That's, why, that's where Bitcoin is revolutionary, is that it can actually do this, A, peacefully, but B, in a... Gradually, I say gradually, but it can happen really fast. Maybe, maybe managed, or because it's voluntary, uh, it, it will be less of less chaotic. I think um, than obviously than just an outright collapse. Like we're talking about something like Venezuela or Argentina or um, Libya or whatever. Like as the currency just implodes and basically there's no escape valve. The fact the United States is like the biggest hope I have for the United States as a country, as a free country, um, and as a potential future economic powerhouse to actually still be meaningful um, and not basically feel the massive force of its garbage fiat currency finally, basically all the bills, all of its bills finally coming due is the fact that the U.S. has essentially the dominant position in Bitcoin. And I'm not meaning the U.S. government, I'm meaning the U.S. population. Uh, The U.S. population has the highest amount of Bitcoin adoption 
and interest, which is pretty interesting since the dollar is so strong and technically, I mean, it's, it's suffering right now, but you know, that wasn't the case in 2016, 17, and 18. But it's weird that it would be so successful here in some ways because it seems like the obvious use case, the, the populations that would see the clear and present value of the system would be the ones that are specifically suffering under terrible currencies. Um, and we're not suffering under terrible currencies. We're benefiting from terrible currency. So I always kind of found, found that interesting, but maybe it's just because we're such a tech world. We got Silicon Valley and, you know, it's just a leading, like we're still the leading market in disruption and uh, trying to find the new innovation and the next big thing. Um, so, so maybe that just, you know, naturally, naturally aligned with Bitcoin and the, those visions of people looking for something new and something different and something that was going to change the world for the better, there was just a lot of momentum in the United States specifically for that. Either way, it's, it's our best chance, I think. You know, it's funny that people, you know, just in the context of this article and kind of the theme of it, um, a huge thank you to Alex Gladstein, by the way. He has been just absolutely killing it lately um, with some of his articles. I mean, this one was unbelievably thorough and just a ton of great like excerpts and additional, um, additional pieces found to, to bolster the argument that I really appreciate. I got a whole lot of links to hopefully dig further into if I get the time. Uh, but there's so many people, particularly when we're talking about Bitcoin, um, is they'll complain about the energy expenditure. They'll say, oh, Bitcoin just burns energy and it's got this huge, huge energy and CO2 cost. And Thomas Sowell said actually in an interview that I just thought I loved this framing of it, of it is that so many people, um, the Keynesians, the majority of the leftists and anybody who would identify as a socialist essentially assumes or bases their theories on the idea that there is a quote-unquote solution that doesn't have costs and that the reality and anybody who is a serious economist knows that there is no solution, there, is, there are only trade-offs and that the way to get to the heart of all of the problems is to ask whenever a, compare, like a, a claim is made of something is to ask in comparison to what or at what cost. And the Bitcoin energy debate could not be a better framing for that fallacy. The petrodollar system has staggering negative externalities. It is a massive, massive waste of energy. And propping it up has been incredibly destructive in more ways than one. It is caused... It's caused the very tight alliance between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, it has supported the Saudi Arabian dictatorship and multiple dictators and tyrannical regimes all across the Gulf and the Middle East. Again, it has gutted the middle class in the United States. It has gutted our manufacturing base and our economic independence. It has over-financialized and corrupted our financial markets. It supported wars and a staggering amount of funding for 
defense, and military services. It is the fuel for the military-industrial complex, and it has forced us and it has forced the U.S. into a position where we had to run astronomical, ever-increasing debts. We have obliterated our future in order to prop up our currency system. And I tweeted out the other day, that's what we're comparing Bitcoin to. This is, this is the cost of our, our current monetary regime and sustaining the base money as it is today. There is absolutely no realistic amount of energy that Bitcoin could consume that would not 100% be worth it to solve the systemic corruption and financial imbalances that have been created from the petrodollar system. The price manipulation, the capital controls, the supporting of the dictators, the use of the dollar as a political weapon against foreign populations, and to finally wipe out the deca-trillion-dollar debt bubbles that central banks have produced, I cannot possibly attempt to guess what amount of energy consumption would be needed for it to not be worth that. So anyway, um, I'm, uh, I'm out of time here. Uh, let's go ahead and close this one out. Uh, another thank you to Alex Gladstein and Bitcoin Magazine uh, for the constant great stuff. I'm, I'm not been able to keep up at all uh, recently. There's so many different reads. I've been trying to hit Bitcoin Magazine like once a week um, just because I've already, always got like a backlog. Uh, and there's a number of really good ones that I want to get to. So um, uh, stay tuned. Don't forget to vote for what you're interested in and or DM me anything that you want to recommend for the show. Um, as open, I always love suggestions. Again, like it's really important to, um, like I want to know what you guys want to listen to, right? That's the point of this show. So let me know. It's much, much appreciated. Um, BitcoinAudible.com slash vote. If you want to pick out uh, which one, if you want to play around with lightning and you want to pick out which one you want to hear next. Huge thanks to our sponsors, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Um, just got some great feedback from another listener who is absolutely loving it. Um, and uh, thank you guys. Don't forget to use the discount code GUY, uh, G-U-Y, gets you 5% off and lets them know that I sent you there. Uh, and of course, our other amazing sponsor, swanbitcoin.com slash guy for your automatic Bitcoin savings plan stacking every week. And I love it. My ref link uh, slash guy gives you $10 free when you start up, uh, start up your savings plan. Thank you all so much for listening. I've got so much more to come. So stay tuned. Stay subscribed. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.